instead of considering how we could alleviate traffic by getting folks out of their cars, we just looked at car-centric solutions. Back up. Say, this system doesn't need more money. It needs reform. It needs redirection. It needs to start taking its cues from human beings living in a city and what their urgent needs are. Sounds like a business community and a political community that's more focused on bringing people from elsewhere than actually serving the people who live there and giving them the kind of things that make them want to stay there, make them want to raise a family there, invest there. You're kind of in a rare opportunity to do a lot more. Your greatest bang for the buck is building an amazing city for the people who live there now and making it really, really easy for them to have a high quality of life where they can walk, where they can bike, where they can get to things easily. It is inescapable the absolute allegiance to the automobile in every aspect of development. The first solution you hear when we consider the environment and transportation is we need more EV charging stations. Um, and that's about it. We will never go back to this current paradigm. All right, here we go. Uh, we have such a show tonight. First up, we have Jennifer Love Tang, who is a Monterey Park, Monterey Park, a teacher and community organizer and the writer of a streets blog article that went viral. The article is about how this met measure our money uh, was given by Metro to Monterey park and Monterey park is doing what with it or wants to do build parking lots. Yeah, so we uh, we were given $100 million in Measure R funding, which is fantastic. Um, it is more than three, almost three times our annual budget in the city. Um, it's a monumental amount of money. And um, prior to last week, the proposal was to spend um, $60 million of it on new parking structures. And um, the, most of the rest of it on um, expanding lanes on our main boulevards. And then this was sub, this was up for a vote? Yeah, it was up for a vote last week. Uh, we found out about it. So our city council meetings are on Wednesdays. Um, I found out about this on uh, the previous Friday night. Um, we get, we get you know, a few days uh, to, to look over the agenda. There was no community engagement that was done prior to how we would spend this money. And so uh, I sat down last weekend and was it last weekend? Yeah. Um, last, last weekend and, and wrote an article about it. You just did, had you written for a streets blog before? No, no, I'm an English teacher uh, by trade. Um, I uh, have, you know, uh, not a lot of knowledge in transportation and, and, and policy, but I did run for city council last year. Um, I came in second place, so I'm not on currently on the council. Um, but I, I know I know a lot of a little bit about a lot of things, and um, I know that expanding our streets and increasing the parking structures in Monterey Park, where I have never had a problem finding parking in my 20 plus years of living here, um, was not the right use of the money. So um, as a result of the streets blog article and um, a petition that another resident put together, we had over 150 residents write in in opposition to this proposal. Wow, that's great. And what happened in the vote? So they delayed the vote. Um, and what that means is they, they tabled the proposal um, because LA Metro is um, actually just yesterday, I heard, um, voted to expand the guidelines on which we could use this Measure R funding for. Um, so, you know, those of, those of you who are familiar with, with this area, with the Monterey Park, Alhambra, South Pasadena area, know that our biggest transportation challenge um, in the last 50 or 60 years is the completion of the 710 stub, the 710 freeway. And so uh, when, that, when that project was, um, was uh, killed a couple years ago, this funding um, was divided amongst various cities and we could decide how, we meaning the cities could decide how we wanted to spend it and how we wanted to improve our transportation with it. And um, the parking structures and the lane expansions is what you know, city staff and council here had, had decided. Is there just something confusing about the way this was rolled out that made the city think it was you know, supposed to be for car? How, parking? 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of factors that go into this. I know that the the projects that Metro was approving, because ultimately Metro has to approve these these proposals, um, were very car centric, um, and the guidelines were you know relatively strict in terms of what they could be used for. Um, but ultimately, the goal was to alleviate traffic because of the um, flow of freeway traffic that would come into our, our local streets. And um, instead of considering how we could alleviate traffic by getting folks out of their cars, we just uh, looked at car-centric uh, solutions um, instead of anything else. So the vote is postponed, but you're, you have time to marshal your forces. Uh, I, ideally, yeah. Um, I've been in touch with the city manager and the mayor this week, and um, they're waiting. I mean, that, this was before yesterday's metro vote, but um, they're at the meeting. It was proposed to put together a residential committee to provide input on how we could use this money um, best in our transportation plan. Um, the mayor had uh, had suggested doing community surveys, um, and so. I'm not sure what, what the next step is, but um, I know that residents have reached out to me to communicate interest in participating. And, you know, folks just have a lot of interest in, in, in and suggestions as to how we could use a hundred million dollars. And that's not gonna come your way again, probably, right? Probably not. I mean, um, uh, this Measure R funding, you know, it, the Measure R itself was passed in 2008, um, and it was meant to raise money to, to finish the 710 freeway. Uh, I think it was it raised about a billion dollars that had been um, distributed amongst the various cities here. I mean, that kind of money just isn't going to come again. We don't have any sort of tax, you know, streams that can bring that in for transportation. So it was to finish the 710, but then they decided not that, that not to do that. And then all of a sudden you had this money, billion dollars floating around. Yep. Yep. And so um, there are other San Gabriel Valley cities that are considering how to use this. And, um, you know, a, a few of them, San Marino and, and I think South Pasadena or Pasadena has have come out, uh, come up for, for votes. Um, but, you know, this funding is pretty different from other types of fundings, other other projects, because uh, in order to get it initially approved, you, there's no like community outreach uh, requirement. There's this scene in uh a Woody Allen movie, either Annie Hall or Manhattan, where somebody's talking about Marshall McLuhan and and Woody Allen gets into an argument with him about Marshall McLuhan. And the guy says, well, I happen to teach Marshall McLuhan, so I know all about it. And Woody Allen says, oh, really? Well, I have Marshall McLuhan right here. And he pulls him out from behind the something. So anyway, I have uh, Chuck Marone here from Strong Towns and Don Kostelek from, that I know from Twitter, but he's a planner. Can you all sort of weigh in on this? Like they have a hundred million dollars, you know, what should they do with it or whatever you want, however you want to approach this. Don, Don let, me, let me jump in on this one first. And then I, I, you elaborate on it. I, I think I want to go at the problem here first and let Don kind of talk about maybe what should be done. I, it's fascinating because to me, what I see is I see a ton of needs at the local level. Uh, but, but they're all small. They're all, uh, you know, at the block level, at the neighborhood level. And, and what we have is the wrong delivery mechanism for this money. I, I think if we sit around and we talk about what should be done and, and we get beyond the kind of bureaucratic funnel, uh, private sector, public sector kind of conglomerate coming together here to channel this money, uh, I don't think it'd be very hard to identify a whole bunch of things that need to be done. The problem is if you get money out very quickly, what winds up happening is you take the bad projects off the shelf, the ones that have been sitting there because we just, gosh, we, no one's going to do that. That's a ridiculous project. All of a sudden, oh, it's raining money. Let's, let's pull that project off the shelf and do it. And, and you wind up with the, in a sense, the values of the status quo kind of magnified out throughout the city. I think for people who want to see transportation reform, oftentimes they treat the money like a cudgel. Like if we can just pump enough money into the system, we'll get the bike lane we want. And if we just pump enough money in the system, we'll get the, uh, you know, the sidewalk network that we want. And, and I think that's a strategy. I don't think it's a very successful strategy. I think we actually need to uh, back up, say this system doesn't need more money. It needs reform. It, it needs redirection. It needs uh, it, it's, it's, 
it needs to start taking its cues from human beings living in a city and what their urgent needs are. And then we can start adding money back into the system again and, and, and pumping it in. Uh, but right now, you know, the, 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 the dominant response is going to be, how do we take the highway congestion, transfer it to local streets and meet our level of service and our ADT targets and all the things that highway engineers value? Yeah, I agree. I kind of, when you first started telling the story, my first thought was this kind of show proves what I say a lot is we don't have a funding problem. We have a spending problem. And that's where I agree with Chuck totally. We have to have reform before we can trust putting more money in the system. And yours is the classic example. Here's a project they canceled a billion dollars. They're reallocating money and we kind of want to go to the same solution. And I would even say, go back if we were to talk to, and you were to at least get elected officials and others on a political platform. Well, they're going to talk about jobs and safety. Okay, well, I can show you the studies that the walking and biking investments create 50% more jobs per dollar spent than the highway investments. And we definitely can show you the safety side of that, combined with things of, of the studies showing economies do not stagnate as a result of congestion. If they did, LA would be an economic wasteland or Portland would be or New York. And we just know that's not the case. So some of those traditional arguments, uh, unfortunately, still fly and they shouldn't. And that gets back to the reform point that Chuck made. Well, I guess we can just uh, go back and listen to that over and over again. And, <laughs> and... Well, I, I, I think when I hear Jennifer talking, um, what I hear, and Jennifer, push back on this, please, if, if I'm not, but what I hear is someone who's deeply vested in her community, who is actually hearing regular people say, like, this is what we want. A and she's not seeing that reflected in the policies and the programs that are, are being delivered. I, I really don't think, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out on a limb, I, I, I really don't think that most of the people in the system think that this is like the highest priority. If this money were just given to the cities with no strings, no kind of earmark kind of things, no requirements that you have to meet this, this like engineering standard or this type of metric, um, that, that what would happen is that a, a lot of really good projects could come about because of it. But, but the problem is that uh, these, these systems are not designed to deliver that type of flexibility. They're really designed to deliver the, the same 1950s project, kind of updated. And, and you guys in California, I'm from Minnesota. You in California, I'll put this veneer of, you know, environmentalism, uh, public public process. We'll pretend to listen to people. We'll have you know long drawn out things, and 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 then ultimately we'll do the same thing that we were planning on in the beginning. But we just put like this happy veneer of of engagement over it. I feel like, you know, I'm hearing Jennifer say something that's very powerful. And I would like to reorient our systems so that people like her and the people that she is working with in her community actually have more power in how this money's allocated. Jennifer, I'm, I don't want to step on your words, but is that a fair that's totally fair, Chuck. And, and you know, um, one thing that 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 came to my mind when both of you were talking is, you know, the biggest proponent right now of um, of $60 million for parking structures is our business community. It's the head of our business improvement um, uh, development committee and and the folks that came out are the ones saying like if we build the parking structures you know the, the new businesses will come and it's just a really outdated way of thinking about how you know consumers shop and eat and exist within, you know, a, a community where there's money to be spent. And, um, and that's what I've been trying to get through to, to folks, you know, that uh, those of us that are going out and dropping $100 for a Friday night dinner aren't the ones, it's not about, you know, having a giant parking structure that we need to go to. I'm going to walk there. Like, I'm going to go out to dinner after this and uh, enjoy the weather and be outside. And, um, you know, it's largely a generational divide, unfortunately, of how things have always been done. It sounds like there, you just told the story, you would walk there. It sounds like a business community and a political community that's more focused on bringing people from elsewhere to do something there than actually serving the people who live there and giving them the kind of things that 
make them want to stay there, make them want to raise a family there, invest there, um, what have you. And I think going back to Chuck's comments, even just thinking of like our metropolitan planning organization model, um, here we have a billion dollars. Do we ever just put that in the pot and truly let a region decide what to do with it? No, we don't. It's not allowed. We, we don't want to flex or we can't flex highway money to transit money or all these other things. We built all these barriers that sometimes makes it seem like those are the only options. And I think in your case, you're in a rare situation. And tell me if I'm wrong, that you truly have a lot of options on the table where oftentimes with that infusion of money, we don't have that. And we tend to look at Oh, $100 million for a highway. Well, that gets us a good road. That'll build business. And we never allow the discussion to get farther. You're kind of in a rare opportunity to do a lot more. Yeah, precisely. I mean, uh, the, the, the policy advocates that I'm working with have told me this funding can be used for bike lanes, expanded sidewalks, um, just uh, tr uh, transit. We, we have a local bus that hasn't run all throughout COVID. And, you know, um, there's just so many things that our community needs. Um, and for those of you that aren't familiar with the area, Monterey Park is, we are known for our Asian food. We are a mecca for Asian food. And, um, you know, people come here for that. Um, but I know that it'd be much more enjoyable if they could get here via public transit. In the back of the envelope uh, calculation when I lived in Asheville, North Carolina, because our state DOT for a city of 80,000 was proposing an $800 million four-mile highway expansion project. And I just took and found some online, you know, per mile cost of things like sidewalks, bike lanes, uh, greenway trails and our bus system and, and just kind of said, look, we could fund the entire city's plan to implement its pedestrian plan, its bike plan, its greenways and trails plan and fund operations of the bus system for 20 years when I can prove to you that we'll create more jobs, do more for the economy and do more to alleviate congestion than spending all that money on, on four miles. But we never get to have that discussion. So if you have the time on that delayed vote, those would be the kind of things to maybe look into and go, hey, for this amount of money, we can do every- Astounding things, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 do, I, I do agree with that in the sense that when, 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 when we can focus the conversation on job creation, business growth, uh, entrepreneurship, quality of life, we can start to ask some questions about where do those intersect at the local level in the most powerful way? And it's not in attracting the theoretical person who will brave the congestion of the LA area to make it to your specialty restaurant in your place. Great, if they do, like that's, you know, the, 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 the cream on top. But the reality is, is that your greatest bang for the buck is building an amazing city for the people who live there now and making it really, really easy for them to have a high quality of life where they can walk, where they can bike, where they can get to things easily, um, where they don't have to get into their car, where, where, where the car is an alternative for them, not a mandatory requirement for full participation in society. And if, if you can make... The, the, the thing about those types of investments is that they generally are small. They're really high returning. Like they actually make your city wealthier. They make your place like, like, you know, a lot more prosperous. They'll increase your city budget without increasing your taxes. They actually will make your city budget work better. And they give people a ton more options and improve people's quality of life. This is what is so, I think, you know, Don and I both get, get very, very frustrated because what we see is a vast amount of potential prosperity and opportunity being wasted by a system that often doesn't give us the options you have. And so I do feel like there's a certain, um, I'm honoring you, I'm very proud of you. This is fantastic. I feel like your community, there's a certain responsibility here to not just follow the rote practice, but to actually like have a more deep discussion on what does it mean to create prosperity? And, and how would we do, if with $100 million, how would we do 100 projects or 200 projects instead of four? You know, wh wh why don't we do a bunch of small bets and, and, and like double down on them and see what we can do with this in a very creative way? You're almost playing with house money here in a sense. 
So like leverage it in a great way. I'm taking notes for, <laughs> for my next meetings with the city council members and, and, um, and community members. I think both of you are exactly right. And um, I really hope that our city can become an example of that, but um, you know, uh, we'll, we'll see. I think it, it's a thing too, it, it, with the right themes and that it should in theory cut across political lines because what Chuck was describing is the most fiscally conservative government approach you could take. We want to bolster our tax base without you know, raising taxes. It's not the Walmart that pays the big bill but doesn't produce much per acre like our friend Joe Minicosi talks about. It's the two and three story building that produces more jobs and more tax revenue per acre. And I think you could probably look at similar tax pull from, I mean, if it's a public parking deck, it's not going to have any property tax mm -hmm. for, the, for the city. And given land costs down there, that's a huge hole versus uh, allowing it to be redeveloped as a multi-story private structure or something. I'm excited. Uh, well, I think you also get it. You showed the power to one of the things I say, especially in the advocacy world with with Twitter and stuff. You showed the power of social media. I mean, in some ways, you brought this maybe uncomfortable attention to this smaller city in this region that that maybe was skirting under the radar. And when something goes viral, I don't think a lot of our public agencies are really aligned to deal with what they're they're getting in terms of quick response and quick feedback on things because you have the ability with social media to say hey i have this issue going on in my city and you can get 20 examples of somebody doing something different around the country mm -hmm. for 15 minutes if it gets picked up by the right people there's great power in that yeah i'm so really grateful for that i was just gonna say oh go ahead sorry I was just going to say, you know, the challenge now is keeping keeping that excitement and that that attention on it, you know, on this issue as it goes, because, you know, council could put this on the next agenda and just vote for it if, if we don't keep the pressure on. And so, you know, the, the challenge for me is keeping this this sexy and on people's minds as they as they think about, you know, what what we can do with this money. Um, well, this should be OK, so Strong Towns, your organization, Charles write blogs about the, the exactly this type of thing all the time. Right. I'm sure. Um, can yeah, they like, I, yeah. <laughs> I've written hundreds of thousands of words on this exact set of topics. In fact, I have a book coming out in August on this exact topic. So yes, I, I'm, I'm tooling around on Google maps, which is like the greatest tool for connecting people because I'm, I'm an engineer, I'm a planner, I'm a map person. So when you start describing things, I want to see what this looks like. And when I look at your community, the last thing I see is a shortage of parking. I mean, I, I don't, I, I can't identify where you would actually put a parking ramp where it could potentially even pay for itself. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. You don't lack parking. And I'm sure there's people listening to this in your area that are like, I have a really hard time parking. I, I, no, you don't. I, I, you know, you guys are close enough to downtown LA to know what like parking, you know, that you have to pay for looks like and parking where you've got to wait for, you, you don't have anything like that here. So to me, the, the low hanging fruit is, is clearly not, you know, parking. I mean, I, I don't even know how that could become the issue that is driving anything, particularly from a business standpoint, you have so much land right now in parking that really needs to become something more uh, productive for you. You know, businesses, uh, housing, uh, all these other things that are far more urgent in your part of the world. Um, the idea that we would somehow double down on parking is, is really a, a huge missed opportunity. An easy visual for anybody out there when you get into those is to take that Google Maps aerial or that Google Earth aerial, put it in a PowerPoint file and do something like a yellow line where there's on street parking, do a polygon in, in blue and maybe transparent for surface parking and then another one in purple to show surface parking the number of stories and all of a sudden you see this visual that 30 to 40% of your land mass is taken up by parking. 
And, and I was kind of doing the same thing of looking at that and, and looking at that landform. And I, I bet it would be the dominant visual in your community or even just take a zoomed in area where they're proposing this and show that kind of image to, to articulate the, the enormous landmass that's devoted to that. And that's for any, any advocate, any person working on that issue. It's a pretty simple thing to do, but it's a powerful visual. I'm going to ask Jennifer, you all, I mean, looking at where you're at in the world and understanding some of the macro dynamics going on in California, are you, do you feel like you have an affordable housing issue where you are? Yeah. You feel like you have a a homeless issue. You you feel like you have, you know, some uh, job, job, job balance issue. These are all very common things in your part of the world. And, And to me, if we're serious, like if we feel urgent about that, if we feel like an urgency about that, there is nothing, nothing connecting a parking ramp and the urgency of those issues. And in fact, it's the only way you could possibly connect it is to say a parking ramp could theoretically draw more consumers, which would theoretically create more businesses, which would theoretically create more jobs, which would theoretically create more people to live in housing. Well, why don't we just go out and take the empty lots we have and all this land we have that's really unutilized and, 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 and try to get more out of those investments, try to fit housing in those places, try to fit small businesses into those places, try to fill those and, and make it so that people can actually get around by walking, get around by biking, so that you don't have to spend 60 million on a parking ramp. You can spend 60 million on actually improving your neighbor's quality of life. I, I feel an urgency for that and I don't even live there. I feel it really strongly. I mean, LA's, LA's housing crisis is, is, I think, very well known. Um, and even though we're in the suburbs, um, we have an affordable housing crisis here as does everybody in this community. Um, in the county. And um, yeah, I mean, $60 million could, not that we, you know, not that Metro will let us spend it on housing, but um, an investment in what could, in allowing people who maybe can't afford a car to be able to get to where they need to go, um, investments in that, in that infrastructure would make a really big difference for members of our community. Um, I mean, there's so many policies that I think the city could, you know, consider. We have so many empty lots, if you really zoom in on, on the Google Maps there. Um, they're privately owned. Uh, they haven't been developed. Um, there's no vacancy tax on those undeveloped uh, lots or, you know, empty homes. Um, and yet, you know, home, homelessness is, is growing in our community. If I want to take a, if I don't have a car in your community and I want to take transit somewhere, what is, what's that experience like? Monterey Park's very hilly. Um, we have a local bus called the Spirit Bus that hasn't run since COVID hit. Um, but so for example, uh, my grandfather, when he was alive, we lived at the top of a hill. He would take the Spirit Bus down to catch the Metro bus to take it to downtown LA. If the Metro, if the Spirit Bus wasn't running, he would walk a mile um, downhill and then uphill when he got home. Um, uh, he, he would never ride a bike because it wasn't safe enough. Um, and that's how we got around. There's no just like neighborhood circulator. I mean, this community geographically is not huge. It, it, it's, it's rather compact. There's nothing like I can't go out and in 15 minutes get on some type of circulator that would just go around and connect the community, anything like that. I mean, that, that seems like a very low cost, simple thing to deploy that would really tie in a cohesive way the entire community together. Is there any discussion on transit improvements or ways we can deploy transit here to, to kind of help people? I mean, uh, not that I'm aware of. I'm trying to force the conversation. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. We have we have a, uh, you know, the, the Spirit Bus is something that um, when it was running um, pre-COVID was popular among students and seniors, which make up a great portion of our community. Our, our like median age is like 48, near 50, right? So. Um, it, it, and it costs 25 cents to ride. Um, so a lot of people took that, but the issue that I was hearing from community members was when I was running for city council was that those routes hadn't been changed in as far as we could remember. And so in the last 10 years, we had a huge development, um, finally open. We have this, like this massive shopping complex called marketplace. Um, and it has Costco and Home Depot and all of that. 
And a lot of people want to go there and shop, but um, the only way to get there is via car. Um, and so the city, you know, I, as far as I know, wasn't publicly considering changing routes so that folks could go to our new marketplace. Um, we also are, I'm about one and a half miles to a metro station um, that connects you to, you know, the transit that goes across LA. Um, and the bus, you know, I think went near, near there, but if you want to get there now, you have to drive there and use the parking structure. Was there any debate when that was going in? I mean, I'm looking at the aerial and you know what a Costco looks like, but I mean, I, I, as the crow flies, you're not that far from downtown LA and stuff. And I'm just looking at that landmass devoted to parking and think of the value lost in that. Does that ever come up in their analyses of land use approvals or anything like that? Or that might even be something to ask about. Yeah, you know, I I, I don't know. Um, I, I know that that's where they, they want to um, increase the height limits so that we can get a Carvana there. Um, and so <laughs> that's right by the Costco. And then, and that's a consideration that that has been in the works for a little while. But um, yeah, also that, I mean, that as far as parking, parking lots go, uh, that one doesn't quite, um, it, it really doesn't accommodate the the demand. Um, and it's because nobody, every, nobody has another option, you know? It's, it's always been very hard for me. And let me ask, you know, Jennifer, I don't want to put you on the spot. Let me, um, let me ask our host this, because I, 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 I feel like there is always been this cognitive dissonance with me, uh, with California, and, and, and I can see it in the strodes around your, um, around your new shopping mall, and, uh, you know, the Costco area and all this, this, this cognitive dissonance that we want to be a very progressive state. We want to be a very environmentally conscious state. We want to be leaders in the country in terms of green infrastructure and green automobiles and progressive thought. And yet I, I, every time I visit, I'm just overwhelmed, overwhelmed. I mean, and it is, it is inescapable, the absolute uh, allegiance to the automobile in, in every aspect of development. I'm looking at a place where it's clear that people are trying to get to, and you would like people in this community to get to, and you have like four foot, five foot sidewalks on the edge of an eight lane roadway. You've got to have cars traveling 50 miles an hour, you know, literally four feet from people trying to walk. It's not to mention anyone who would dare bike here. I mean, there's no, nothing set aside. Where, where is the cognitive, what is not connecting here? Why is there this huge gap between what I think are genuine intentions? Like I'm not doubting the intentions of Californians, um, but where's the gap between the intention and the action? Because it's ubiquitous across the entire state. It's not like LA is bad and you go to San Francisco and it's different, or you go to San Diego and it's different, or you go to you know the Valley somewhere. It's like, literally, this is, this is the entire state is like this. You mean it's not like this everywhere? <laughs> no, it's not, truly. Well, I mean, honestly, I mean, I, I, I mean, Chuck, come on, the Costco has solar panels on the top of it. <laughs> it's right? a lead certified building, right? Yeah, now this Marketplace Drive, I mean, it's a classic ex example. Here are these four foot wide sidewalks. There's utility poles stuck in them. It's a brand new collector road of what looks like with absolutely minimum pedestrian facilities, nothing for bicyclists to access this destination. And then we end up with the classic, well, nobody bikes there. Why would we do that? Or nobody walks there. We never see anybody walking. And, and even the interior road is hostile, not to mention the strode that's out there. Well, what good is it to have like a statewide complete streets objective or a, a statewide vision zero objective or a statewide, you know, clean air objective when like literally this is the brand new thing you built. You, you, like, what are you doing? Like, why, why is this? I, I know this is not your, the two of you's vision, but as the, as the outsider, as the like pragmatic Minnesotan who wants to share in your objectives, but, but really, and let me even take it a step further. And this, I don't mean to offend all of our Californians who are kind listening here today, but you know, I, I think California would like to consider itself the national leader in Washington, D.C., in terms of public policy. The, people, they want us to look to California as being like the state to emulate. 
I, I have a hard time because I don't see it in policy on the ground. Why do you think that happens? Why do you think that is? I mean, uh, I, I'd like to offer a political like explanation because that is kind of where I, my expertise lies. Um, I think, I think it's there at the federal and, and maybe at the like top state levels. Um, but I think at the local level, at, at the local level, city, school boards, um, counties, you know, the, the solutions that I've heard start with cars. Um, and we're so culturally, psychologically, economically, all the ways tied to our, our personal vehicles that, you know, the first solution you hear when, when we consider the environment um, and transportation is we need more EV charging stations. Um, and that's about it. <laughs> it ends there, right? If we can get some more EV charging stations, we've done our job. If we can get more people to get EVs, we're good. And the conversation ends. The, the caricature that we have of California here is that. And, and, and I actually think that's sad because when I speak to Californians, that's not what I get. I mean, I get people who genuinely want things differently. I, I, I think there's this tension and, and let me push back a tiny bit on you, Jennifer, and, and see it, how you react to this because I feel like there's this tension when you said, I think the top part of the federal bureaucracy is, is on board. And I think the top part of the state bureaucracy is on board, but there's this like kind of whole thing below there that's, and I actually kind of feel it the other way. I actually feel like, um, you know, if there was a real commitment at the state level, there wouldn't just be like a hundred million dollars given to you and say, hey, go build parking ramps with this. Uh, it would be like, hey, um, we got this program. You can get up to a hundred million dollars, but you got to start doing things to change the, the development pattern, make it more productive. We'll, we'll give you 10 million because everybody gets a little bit because it's a pandemic. But if you want the other 90 million, like here's things we'll do. And, and uh, you know, one of them is de-emphasize parking. Like you can't use this for parking ramps. You can't use this for uh, building more collector roads. You can't use this for highway overflow through your neighborhoods. Um, the, what do you, do you, I guess the question that I'm asking and the thing that I'm struggling with is it feels like from here, from my view, that it's the opposite as you describe it. It feels like the state is actually kind of saying one thing, but then willing to kind of put all the incentives in for something radically different. I mean, I, I, I see that. And um, I mean, I think it would be fantastic for, for the higher ups uh, to be able to uh, guide where this funding can be used. Um, and, and in this specific case, I mean, from what I've been told, LA Metro had been approving very car-centric proposals and not approving other ones, right? And so so you're definitely right. And, and, and when I think about that example, that's a prime case. Um, I think at the end of the day, I mean, uh, the, the less car centric, the more the more active transport uh, transportation type of proposals are coming from residents themselves. And it's just up to everybody else to listen to us. Is there a, um, a well, I think getting back to, to Chuck's point, just kind of what I've seen in the state bureaucratic levels, I think there's, and this might be the issue that's going on there. I think one, especially for state DOTs, I don't think they realize or want to admit how much locals look up to them for transportation guidance. You're looking at a bureaucracy that even in a place like Idaho, you know, is probably almost a thousand employees. And in California, it's it's probably 10 to 20,000 employees of Caltrans versus a city whose transportation or economic staff might be two or three people. So they're looking to them for guidance. They don't really get it in this realm because that hasn't historically been their business. But this tends to look like, oh, well, see, look at the great thing we're doing. We're giving it to the locals to make their own decisions with. But the real guidance, the real tie back to those goals and initiatives and stuff that that Chuck's talked to seem to be absence. Have you seen any evidence of those kind of things? Not in my local advocacy, no. I mean, it's, it's, it, it is a, a point of pride, I would say, to allow the local jurisdictions to make their own decisions. Um, and you know, that, that leaves a lot of room. <laughs> yeah. I, I know that one of the things we were gonna chat about tonight are some of the myths in, uh, 
in, in transportation. And I think this is one of the, the main myths is that locals have a lot of leeway and flexibility in what they do. Um, I, I'll say here, in, in my hometown of Brainerd right now, uh, we're having this debate over the, the, the simplest, dumbest of things. Uh, in the downtown, they wanna make colored crosswalks, which is like a, a basic, these aren't, these, aren't on, these aren't on state highways, they're not on federal roads, they're not even on collector roads, they're on little tiny streets. They wanna put some decorative stuff in. And we're getting like feed, we're, we're asking permission at the city level, we're asking permission from the federal highway administration. We're asking for guidance for them on what we can do in terms of like local crosswalks. So I, I, I do think that one of the myths and, and you know, Jennifer, we, we should maybe make this clear because I feel like maybe I've been a little hard on, on you or your city or your state. One of the myths is that uh, local leaders can decide these things and go do them. They really do face an entire bureaucracy that is kind of in alignment on what the standards are, what the guidance is, what rules you follow, what you can do. And, and, and the, the change within that system really, unless you get someone who's a very progressive minded engineer, they're out there, they're wonderful people, you can find them, but you really have to work. But your standard run of the mill city engineer, your standard run of the mill, you know, DOT engineer is very much going to be by the book. And that book is the six lane collector that I'm looking at in your city right now. Don, I don't know if you have a, a, a thought on that or a response to that. Am I, yeah, am, no, I, off? I, am I am I not being generous enough? No, I, I think there's um, I think there's some validity in that. I, I look at it and and like you said, we're not picking you guys apart, Jennifer. We're, it's kind of this almost in the business of community group therapy. Yeah, <laughs> and, and there's there's thousands going through the same kind of thing because every Costco, Home Depot, Buffalo Wild Wing shopping center looks doesn't look dramatically different from that. They might put in more landscaping or something and that's where we draw the line. Yeah, I mean, what Chuck is saying is, is correct to a point, I would say, in going back to what you were describing, when you look at the case law and other things and get into the real, real wonky stuff that I do, if you find a good engineer that's willing to say, yes, I do not believe that painting local residential streets poses a safety threat. I'm going to document this exception and use my engineering judgment. They have leeway to do that. They may not know they have leeway to do that. They may have the state tapping them on the shoulders and, and those kind of things. We just haven't encouraged the type of flexibility that if you get deep enough into the quote unquote standards, it's there. And even just thinking back what you said, Jennifer, from a policy perspective, um, does, and then looking at this Costco, does the city in its transportation or traffic impact studies require an analysis of pedestrian and bicyclist quality of service or level of service? I don't know. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. And if, the funny part is... <laughs> The software that gets used to do, I mean, you could do a public records request for the traffic impact study for this development, and you're going to find they used a software that also has tabs for pedestrian and bicyclist level of service. And it's kind of clunky. I'm not saying what's an output of that is the best, but if a city is proclaiming to be about these environmental initiatives and things and the only thing they're looking at in a in a development analysis from a transportation standpoint is motor motorist level of service well then you're not achieving that and so that would be a great I think policy platform to talk about I know there are cities in California that do require multimodal level of service analysis and it's about a trade-off hey we we're achieving um, you know e for cars but we're achieving, D or C for pedestrians and bicyclists. That's a policy trade-off that we're willing to make because our community goals are X, Y, and Z. That shouldn't be a hard argument to make, but given the size of your city and so many others out there, they may not even know that those same tools exist for those modes. Let, let's de-wonk that a tiny bit because you, yeah. you referred to D and, and C and all the, and I, I, there's, a, there's a term called level of service that these 
software packages are designed to theoretically analyze. And I, I will say as the license engineer that these are like voodoo boxes, they're, they're, they're statistical mishmash. And I, I don't, I, I do think that one of the major drawbacks of the engineering profession today is that they look at systems such as traffic as being uh, complicated systems. Uh, they don't really appreciate the complexity and the dynamism that are involved in them. And because of that, their models uh, look more like a mathematic equation as opposed to a human equation. Yeah. Um, humans do all kinds of weird things. Like, let me give you an example. If traffic is really busy, they go at a different time. And if traffic is not busy, they go whenever they want. And so it's really interesting that when you build capacity, all of a sudden people who weren't taking trips before uh, all of a sudden take trips because there's more capacity. And so all of a sudden you haven't really solved the congestion that your model said you were gonna solve by building additional stuff. Um, we use these models all the time in these theoretical situations when you're putting in a new building or a new development, they'll, they'll require them to do a traffic study. Th this is, to me, I, I call these things like perpetual employment guarantee regulations for engineers because they, they really, are nonsense statistics when they get done because they're not dynamic types of things. Uh, but you know, Don's point is really good in that we could we we could do this statistical uh, trickery with pedestrians and with bikers too. The models can do that, and they will have the same veneer of credibility. We just don't do that. And if if we did that, it would it would give us the capacity to at least have a policy conversation in a development yeah. about trade-offs, yeah. about what we want, about what our objectives are. Um, but the reality is, is we don't take that one little simple step. And, 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 and to me, that, that calls into question intent. And I, I think that's where I get the most hung up with is, um, you know, if, if, if the idea of a complete street is we're gonna build everything for automobiles like the best we can, and then we will do the minimal amount to accommodate humans outside of an automobile. What have you done? Like that, that's, that, that's not a legitimate approach to something. If it's the idea is- It's not an integrated- Exactly, it's an accessory. I use an analysis. So go back to that traffic study example. If you were to go in for this Costco, um, the, the best thing, best way is that precision doesn't mean accuracy and something like this traffic model or this traffic study will make elected officials feel really good because it'll have a very precise number that we're going to have 82 vehicles turning right between 8 a.m. and 9 a.m. in the year 2040. Therefore, we must build this. Oh, well, yes, that sounds very precise. Well, it's not very accurate because like Chuck said, well, that, that what you just said People are listening to this going, that, they don't really say that, do they? Oh yeah, they do. Yes, <laughs> yes they and it's do. It's also calibrated to the peak 15 minutes as kind of the barometer. And, and that's the decision to make billion dollar programmatic investments. And, and my kind of statement to that is, you know, we, we build stuff for motorists, motorists that won't exist till, until 2040, but we can't build something for a person who wants to walk, bike or take transit today and again it's a values issue within our system that, that we can never quite get to to have the conversations but I think it's you know if I'm on your policy side and I'm talking to your neighborhoods yeah why aren't we considering pedestrians in this development analysis and and let them answer why that, that that's not a consideration so I, I see the note here that California has de-emphasized level of service it's not that they're not using it they, they still have the capacity to use it and it's still part of the conversation. They've not made it a, Don, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, I think the technical thing is that they've not, uh, they're de-emphasizing it in a sense um, and switching to VMT, which I, okay, I, I don't really find, you know, uh, VMT projections. John made the, the, the thing that sounded kind of flippant and that's why I wanted you to dwell on it. Like in 2040, the right-handing turning traffic will be 85, you know, whatever. And therefore we need these extra two lanes. Um, that's, a v, that's a vehicle miles traveled calculation. It's a, it's a projection of traffic flow. And quite literally, that's how we are making hundreds of millions of dollars, billion dollar decisions. 
on you know where we should spend things based on the automobile. And that happens all the time today in California. I want to jump in and say, oh yeah, I'm just reading your book, Charles. I guess it was your first one about strong towns. Mm-hmm. And it's it's easier to follow than this conversation. Um, I'm, it's a good, <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing about my book or a bad thing about this conversation. <laughs> no, it's both good. I'm just going to, I'm, I'm uh, just in case anybody wants to like, a, like a good way of starting uh, it would be to read your book. And, but you mentioned complexity versus complicated. And I remember that was an important part of, of, you know, a lot of people might not intuitively understand the difference, but I also wanted to talk about your ideas about the incremental approach and your advice to Pete Buttigieg, the new, uh, you know, secretary of the DOT um, about, well, it was in a CNN article. You, you were mainly saying, I guess, you know, don't put so much money into highways, but are you, how do you feel about like massive investment in green new deal type infrastructure where, you know, people can bike safely? I feel like the hundred million dollars we're talking about with Jennifer would probably qualify under the current Green New Deal type of, of thinking. Um, and so I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical about just pouring money into the system right now today, even if we kind of put this veneer of a different ethic on it. Um, the, the, the article I wrote recently for CNN uh, that was uh, basically, and this is in a Minnesota humble way, uh, advice for the, uh, the new transportation secretary uh, I gave three examples and all three of them were designed to um, correct or fix or mitigate or reverse the damage of prior federal uh, highway investments. So the first one dealt with Shreveport, uh, the idea that we're going to run a highway through a, a traditional African-American neighborhood to connect two segments of an interstate that have just never been finished the interstate highway system has been done for 40 years, but there's these tiny little segments that aren't done and they're not done because they're really dumb. Um, but we drew a line on the map back in the 1930s. And so we must complete this segment. And so this poor neighborhood has been held hostage for century, for centuries, for decades, wait, you know, while this, this big federal project is coming through. The other one dealt with Austin where the, the highway ran right through the middle of, of a neighborhood again, traditionally, in this case, African-American neighborhood, cut it off from the rest of the city, uh, put it in like a stasis and a decline that wasn't experienced in the rest of the city. There's an opportunity now to lower the highway and reconnect those streets and actually create that neighborhood again, recreate it. And the DOT instead wants to put 20 lanes through. So widen from 12 to 20 and rip out even more homes and create an even bigger gap. Uh, and then, you know, going to the secretary's own city and recognizing that what he did when he was mayor of South Bend, and, and I went there a couple of times uh, and met with their staff and they were genius people. Uh, they invested, they, they had one lane highways that went through their town to move traffic quickly. They turned them into two lanes. They slowed the traffic. They added bike lanes. They added wider sidewalks. They added more uh, walking and biking emphasis. And they saw massive amounts a private sector investment, the real high quality, high quality of life kind of stuff that came in. And, and so to me, I, I, I think we could wrap that up in a Green New Deal kind of vision. When I hear people talk about Green New Deal, the next thing I hear them talk about is EV charging stations and, uh, and that kind of thing. Um, and so to me, I, I talk about it less in terms of like, the Green New Deal and more in terms of let's localize our investments. Let's create great feedback loops on the ground so that those highest returning investments, which are biking and walking and street trees and crosswalks and, and, and things that help people who are homeless and things that help people who can't afford to get in a home. These are our highest returning investments. If we can create the right feedback loops to have those emerge, I think we will never go back to this current paradigm. And can you can you describe how that feedback loop works? And um, is, is it going to happen fast enough? Like if you're looking at climate change, is it, is it all going to come together fast enough in any scenario? I, I think it's a, it's a good question. Um, 
I will say this, and, and I think that California re represents a special case um, because California has Prop 13 and Prop 13 creates these really horrible distorting incentives for local government to favor the Costco over the local entrepreneur, to favor the big condo unit project that creates a hundred homes over the incrementally building a thousand homes in, in many different places. Um, you have created a tax system that reinforces kind of the worst behaviors and the worst incentives. And the feedback loops that I'm talking about are ones where if local governments want to, let's say, quote unquote, grow their way out of their fiscal challenges, they actually have the right feedback loops to do that. If I spend a hundred million, if I spend $60 million on a parking ramp, I'm going to lose $55 million. Like that's a, that's a bad investment. If I spend $50 million on biking and walking infrastructure, street trees, crosswalks, sidewalk repair, this kind of thing, I'm going to make 200, 250, $300 million. That's the way the math works on these. In your city, in California, that doesn't show up in your city budget. Like you don't get that feedback loop because if you make the existing properties more valuable, you're limited in terms of Prop 13 on how much taxes they will pay, what that feedback loop is. And so you have trapped your land use in stasis, not allowing it to change and adapt. And you've created this huge incentive for communities to favor these big new development types of projects in order to cash flow their government in the short term. And, and that just makes all of it not work real well at the local level. You don't have that in Idaho. You don't have that in Minnesota. So Don and I are working in systems that have a little bit more dynamism than what you've created in California. Didn't you just answer your own question from earlier? What's that? <laughs> Why is California like this? Yeah, I, 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 I have my own theories, but I think that we could confirm my biases all day. I, I think that to me, it's interesting to talk to people who are there because I think you have a different take that I may not fully appreciate, right? Yeah, I think the, the going back to your question, Nick, on just the, if we were to massively reform our transportation investment, we still have a lot of other policy issues that uh, we have to address. One of the studies uh, my colleague and I have worked on here in Boise is just school siting and, and school campus development policies. And we're, we're building high school campuses in the Boise area that are bigger than the site of the Pentagon. And, and we claim to be a fiscally conservative state that's, you know, burdening local cities to extend services out to there. And then guess what? The city built the sewer so the developer can more easily tap into it. And we don't even do a good job of master planning the land use around those things to at least take advantage of some economies of scale. And then when we go to talk to school superintendents about the transportation costs, well, we don't pay that. The state pays for transportation costs. Well, who's the state? It's our taxpayer. So we've got I, what, what Chuck's getting at some of those things is, is the start of addressing these disconnects that we could just go down the line one after the other, even outside the traditional transportation realm that, that we, we've created for Idaho as an example for claiming to be a fiscally conservative state in 80 acres off the public tax rolls in perpetuity. We've saddled local communities with road system and busing and service challenges that they can't possibly address. And our issues are we, our cities just see themselves as this massive expanse of annexation. And the first one or two that we really have in our region that gets fully surrounded and can't grow is gonna have this horribly fixed footprint that they're gonna start getting into the, the, the growth Ponzi scheme issues and the other stuff that Chuck talks about. It's just not gonna pencil out in the long run, but I, I fear they're, they're not gonna adjust that till they learn their lesson. Yeah, okay, so then I guess just we just all need to get uh, more aware. I, let, me, let me give you the hard answer, but the, the simple answer. I think that what we have done is we have spent 70 plus years uh, kind of trying to create growth from the top down. And we've created these systems that uh, we can replicate 
very, very quickly, very intensively and create a lot of jobs and a lot of growth and a lot of transactions in our economy. But what we have created is these cities that are very spread out, don't make very good use of these investments. And what we need now is an extended period of time, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years or more, where we thicken these places up and, and, and make better use. What we, I talk about putting more meat on the bones, basically going into these places and helping them thicken up. And that's a different economic model. That's a different development model. And it's one that is hyper-local. And, and so to me, if I'm looking at California, I'm less interested in what the large state policy is that's gonna create high-speed rail or gonna create EV charging stations or whatever it is. And I'm more interested in creating dynamism at the block level so that neighborhoods can start to adapt and evolve and make better use of this framework that we've actually invested in and built and now, and, and now have to spend money maintaining with, that we don't have. And go back to the, the Costco example you brought up, Jennifer. Maybe, maybe there is a reason to accommodate a certain level of, of motor vehicle uh, demand and service that's there. But when I look at that footprint and knowing what I do about land values and how close you are to downtown LA, why isn't that in a parking structure with those other acres of land in multi-story buildings and, and getting the policies? If Costco wants to be there, they'll be there if they have to build an urban template type of store, but at least give that land an opportunity, like Chuck said, to create an identity, to create a neighborhood. And maybe, I mean, you've got urban Home Depots in Chicago and other places. There's examples of those that come about because of policy. But I look at that and go, we would build that same thing here in, in Southwest Idaho, where the land isn't anywhere close to as valuable. And, and we're starting to feel the housing issues, but I just look at, if look at, take Chuck's meat on the bone and apply it to any new suburban strip mall and think about those things. And you can see that concept in action. Um, I just want to answer my own question. You know, what do you do about climate change if, if you're not going to go the big way or the green new deal way? And I think that to use your phrase, Charles, you know, dynamism at the local level, I could see that really just somehow resonating all over the world all at once. And on that note, if uh, I know Jennifer has to go, I know I have you guys for an hour anyway. So, hey, you thanks, wanna, uh, how about how about if you know, if anybody wants to say or you could go around, uh, you know, where do you want people to go to find out more, maybe get in touch? Anybody want to give us some social media information? Well, I mean, I think that at least on the transportation side, the work right now that Transport for America, Beth Osborne and her group is doing, they're really trying to turn the screws at the national policy level. Um, we didn't get to the wonkiness of something like MUTCD and all of that, but America Walks and uh, NACTO and the Bike League are getting advocates to comment on that document that is heavily auto-centric and in need of, of revision. So I think at the federal policy level, if you're talking about those things, those are the groups. And Chuck's Strongtown's website has all types of posts, not just from him, but Strongtown members and other network folks that get at those ideas and probably branch you off in those. That Those would be my top recommendations. And that's not just to scratch Chuck's back. No, because my top recommendation is to follow Don on Twitter. <laughs> Because seriously, it's it's a fantastic Twitter feed. Don, what's your handle, man? Uh, Costa-like plan. One That's word. right. <laughs> so you can follow us at Strong Towns, at Strong Towns on Twitter. Um, I'm at CL Marone. The book is Strong Towns. And the one I've got coming out in August is called Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. And that will be available sometime towards the end of August. I'm going to get dynamism at the local level tattooed on my arm. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm at, at Jennifer Love Tang on Instagram. And uh, my, my article about the $100 million proposal is on LA Street Blogs. Are you going to do a follow-up to what happens next with Street Blog? And that I, I definitely want to know. I have not. I got to go check that article out. I guess I have to now. <laughs> yes. Thank you for your leadership, Jennifer. I mean, what you're doing is is... Uh, is, is courageous and brave and, and we need people like you asking these hard questions and, and bringing this forward. So I really have a lot of respect for what you do.
Thank you. And thank you to you both for the, I didn't expect to get a, an hour long uh, consulting session here. So I'm going to rewatch this and take notes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll build the city. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Shows I care every turn of the pedal cleans the air. Green in the green, I'm saving the planet. Just like my friends Dale, Sean, Toby, and Janet. No greenhouse gas, a tiny carbon footprint up your ass. I'm on a motherfucking bike. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is biketalkpfk. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. 